this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, speaking of the union, we have a new union member, Michelle, or just Shell, who you'll know from the I Hate the 90s blog, which we have talked about numerous times, has joined the podcast, joined our Discord or, or join the, uh, the Patreon, join the Discord. And um, we have taken so many MP3s from her site over the years. <laughs> I told her I got half a terabyte just filled up with with MP3s downloaded from I Hate the 90s. Great resource to find really obscure stuff that you're never going to find on Spotify or Apple Music or any place or maybe in a CD store in the back in the corner where they're getting rid of the CDs. That's in, in the dollar bins. That's about it. But good luck. So welcome, Shell. Glad to have you here. Speaking also, Jay, of uh, patrons, we have a patron joining us. He's been here before. He's back again. Always with the eclectic choices, I like to say. There's no rhyme or reason. Some people have a rhyme and a reason. There's no rhyme or reason to these picks, other than he likes them. So welcome back, Mr. Patrick Testa. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Tim. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know if there, there is a rhyme or reason. I think there is. There's a thread, but it's kind of like a, a painting or something. It's going to eventually reveal itself. Maybe. You have different periods in your in your painting. You have like your your uh, your blue period and that kind of thing. Yeah, you could you could say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's let's just go back a couple picks ago. I picked an album that sold 3 million copies, Tool, uh, Anima. And then I picked an album from Hamill on Trial that sold maybe 3,000 copies. <laughs> right. So I'm going right in the middle there. Right. And maybe the first was, one was uh, Laid by James. James. That was, I think, a gold record, maybe. Yep. Was, yeah. But that is a, it took a long time for that to be a gold record. Right. All very, Sound-wise, all very different bands. Maybe so. so. Yeah, I think I think the thread might be that there's uh, I find importance in songs uh, rather than just fun or um, tickle fancies, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. And and I think everybody does that, too. But I think uh, I think mine, my the choices that I make as far as like um, DJing or picking song, picking albums like this, I think they have something to say. Um, I'm not too really good on articulating it. <laughs> so maybe the record itself can speak for it. Gotcha. All right. Without further ado, share with the listeners the album that you selected for this episode. So this is a challenge for you guys too. And, and I know there's been a couple of so-called jam bands uh, chosen over, over the past 500 plus episodes. But I think, I mean, maybe a couple, right? Have uh, there been? Yeah, well, you guys kind of nominated a few of those along the way as kind of a jam band record. I think uh, 
which won last year. Uh, wasn't uh, that the New Newfoundland band? Uh, I don't. I don't even. I don't even want to try to remember because I can't think of it. But what I'm going to say is, widespread panics, bombs and butterflies from 1997 is a quintessential jam band. But in my mind, this is a record that it's more like a a great example of a jam band making a rock record. And um, we'll get into all the details of why I feel that way. And you guys can have your opinions as well, of course. But yeah, so this record probably sold, I don't know, do you know the record sales? I think maybe around 300,000. So that's kind of, uh, of an interesting point. Um, I don't know the numbers, but I know that it, uh, it made its number 50 on, uh, the album made its number 50 on the Billboard 200 and the track Hope in a Hopeless World made its number 13 on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks in 1997 and it's their highest charting single. Um, they did appear on like Late Night with Conan O'Brien to promote this album uh, to play Aunt Avis and then the video for that was directed by Billy Bob Thornton. Oh yeah. And featured uh, the vocalist which we'll talk about. Yes. Uh, Jay, familiar with Widespread Panic? Uh, I know the I know the band. I mean, I know of the band. Let me put it that way. I don't know that... I definitely have never listened to an album, and I don't know if I've actually heard them. So um, <laughs> that's about that's about the extent of it. Like, they, didn't, a, they never had a radio single, right? Well, they did, but I don't think it was something... I mean, it was a mainstream track in 97, and I don't think we were listening to the mainstream radio in 97. Okay. So that's probably where the disconnect is for us. Yeah. That in, in 97, I was still at college radio. I wasn't turning on a mainstream station. I don't really remember hearing that um, here anyways. I think that there's still a time of uh, regional yeah. hits. And I can speak to the regional popularity of widespread panic a little bit on that too. But I don't, I don't remember that song ever being on the radio. Um, I, I was in radio then and I was serviced the single and um, we, we played songs off the album, but uh, no, it wasn't, that was a triple A radio and it was not mainstream. So I, I think maybe down South, it got a lot more airplay. Gotcha. So a little bit of history on the band. Do you, do you know stuff or do you want to share it or do you want me to go through this? You go ahead through it. I, I got some things to share that might not be uh, like a chronological thing. Okay. History of the band. So the band formed in 86 in Athens, Georgia. The current lineup for the band is singer, guitarist, John Bell, bassist, David Schools, drummer, Dwayne Trucks, Percussionist Domino, D- Domino, Domingo, Sonny Ortiz, keyboardist John Jojo Herman, and guitarist Jimmy Herring. The original guitarist um, and occasional songwriter Michael Hauser died of cancer in 2002. And the original drummer Todd Nance left in 2006, 2016, and he passed away um, in 2020. They hold the record at um red rocks for sold out performances they have 60 and at state farm arena which is atlanta they have 20 sold out performances in atlanta um their first album uh was released in 88 space wrangler on landside records 
landslide records. And then they signed to Capricorn, which is, I believe, a subsidiary of Warner Brothers, and released their self-titled album in 91. Every Day came out in 1993. Ain't Life Grand in 1994. Bombs and Butterflies, which we are reviewing, came out in 1997. Uh, Their last album for Capricorn was Till the Medicine Takes in 1999. Then they moved to... Their own label, Widespread Records, with also a UK distribution through Sanctuary. Uh, they released Don't Tell the Band in 2001, Ball in 2003, Earth to America in 2006, Free Somehow in 2008, Dirty South Side 2010, and then they released Street Dogs on Vanguard Records in 2015. They've also released a number of of live recordings, which you would expect from a jam band, as the term uh, is referred to. Um, And uh, they've had a compilation album called Choice Cuts, The Capricorn Years from 91 to 98. was released in 2007. Um, And, uh, yeah. And they appear on a bunch of compilations for various um, things like Hempelation, Freedom is Normal, and uh, live from Bonnaroo and songs of the Grateful Dead and that kind of stuff. So they, they did that Van Morrison song and it stoned me on the Appalachian. Good version. That actually, that's a great compilation. Actually, there's a ton of good songs on there. But let me get to Capricorn Records real quick because Capricorn is an important uh, record label. Um, in the 70s, of course, they were synonymous with Southern rock. Mm-hmm. The Almond Brothers were their big. Uh, signed band in 1970, 69, 70. Um, but, you know, they were notorious for having um, created, they're no- notorious for having those uh, Capricorn Records parties. So the record label would throw these giant parties down in uh, Macon, Georgia, and uh, eventually uh, fans such as Governor Jimmy Carter would be involved with those parties. Uh, just it's it was a sign of some sort of i mean i don't know the history of the of the record i think there's going to be tons of stuff to read about in the books that are out there that i haven't gotten to yet but there are books on it so there i'm sure there's incredible debauchery but eventually that label had to fold in 79 and which is crazy because they had bands like they had super popular bands like allman brothers and marshall tucker band and then they had some other bands that sounded like them that were big in like the prog scene Sea mm-hmm. um, level was there. Cowboy. These were big selling records, and it's it's unfathomable that they were always running uh, in the red. But that's what happened. Um, so they folded in '79, and then in '91, I think the '90 or '91, when when Widespread Panic was signed, is kind of like their rebirth, and they were their own label. I think they're distributed only by those major labels, um, uh, Warner Brothers. But throughout the 90s, they ended up having big sellers. But it, but it was kind of like Almond Brothers were synonymous with Southern rock. People can classify the Almond Brothers as a jam band. They are clearly a jam band, but they're a blues rock band. They're a soul, so, Southern soul band. Widespread Panic had a lot of those same characteristics. I think Capricorn Records kind of wanted to jump back into the game, so they they 
got widespread panic. They also signed other acts too. I think 311 was on the label, um, Cake. So those are big selling albums. Um, and uh, eventually they sold their label. I think they finally tried to make the money and get out. And, <laughs> and that's what they did. They sold to Sony. They, they own the, yeah. the catalog now. So all those reissues of all the 70s Allman Brothers records and Marshall Tucker albums are are uh, now somebody else's property. But Capricorn is the iconic label for that. Yeah, uh, the, the second incarnation, as you mentioned, was a bit more diverse, I think, than the you mentioned like Cake and 311. Those were definitely like bands of the moment uh, for... Uh, a lot of, I mean, obviously they had like government mule and, and other bands that would be in the same. Uh, yeah. Sound. They released some things for a lot of, I think a lot of bands kind of uh, looked at a lot of jam bands and blues rock bands kind of looked at Capricorn records. Like, Hey, I'd like to release something on that label just to, you know, be part of that legacy, you know, but I, I don't think they were, you know, they were, you know, 311 was on them for a while. So they, right. you know, and, and the thread there is they have a huge, you know, live concert draw falling as well. And so does Cake even. So they're, I think, you know, I would, you know, 311, I guess could be a jam band. They play all the, <laughs> the festivals and they jam out with, uh, sometimes with Snoop Dogg, but <laughs> with other people too. Well, there, yeah, there's definitely a, odd contingent but what the 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 worlds that cross over between uh when like a band like 311 which has obviously a hip-hop end but then also has this uh reggae or or um ska and not in the ska we think of with like less than jake but you know the that end and then there are bands that in in the the jam arena which also then sort of get into some can use some of the um the reggae sounds as well that like you get these weird linkages in that uh in those connections hmm. what is the common thread there <laughs> willie nelson's uh <laughs> herbal uh ingredients yeah yeah there we go um all right let's get into this uh let's get into the comments first uh on this record um, Kyle Bittner, there's some interesting guitar work and slinky bass lines on this album, but ultimately it's not my style of music. Okay. Uh, Willie Dillon said, I wish I could enjoy the music of my fellow Georgians. Blast. <laughs> I would be lying if I spoke such wordery. Okay. Well, Willie was being honest there. Uh, that's it. Those are our comments. We'll get to the poll at the end of the episode when we give our verdicts. Uh, Jay, tell me one thing you liked about Bombs and Butterflies by White Bread Panic. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing the, the, the piano, the clavinet. There's a lot of clavinet on this. Um, I think that's an instrument that's immediately, I think of, you know, 70s classic rock and um, it brings a cool rhythm element um, to the bass parts. Um, so you hear that right, right away on track one. It, it felt very much like a, like a seventies Eric Clapton kind of vibe, um, which was unexpected. It, you know, there's, it's not a typical, 
that that the, the way that they used you know key, organ keyboard piano clavinet those sorts of instruments is not what you would typically hear in the 90s you know it harkens back um to something more classic so i enjoyed that uh, aspect of it combined with um you know the guitar playing is is really good there's some great tones on here there's some great leads i can see you know in a live um from a live standpoint how all that would work i think there's some interesting uh dynamics between the two as well where you know songs will start you know maybe on guitar and be a little darker and then the keyboard the piano part will come in and really change it um and they'll do this push and pull then between the verse and the chorus between those instruments kind of taking uh, taking over the sort of the focus, um, which is a lot of the dynamic, I think that, that, that happens with this band, that, you know, create hooks and um, create movement. And the songs is really the sort of the tension between the piano and the guitars. So I enjoyed listening to that. I think there's some, there's some pretty cool vocal stuff on here as well in terms of, I think it must be Vic Chestnut. There's another singer on Ann Avis, um, that is kind of a raspier voice that I like quite a bit. But then it goes in these other places too, where I'm hearing artists that I wouldn't expect. Um, so one would be um, like this, a song like Gradle. I hear actually a lot of Space Hog um, and the way that he's, he's singing there, um, which is kind of unexpected and, and, and kind of fun. Um, it reminded me of like something off that could be off the Chinese album maybe. Um, and then a song like You Got Yours, I can hear some more modern influences on that tune that maybe, maybe they were listening to Alice in Chains, you know, and trying to like reinterpret something that had a, had a riff, heavier riff, but then vocally, even there's some, there's some harmony there and some just melodic feel that to me would sound like it maybe an interpretation of something like Alice in Chains, which was kind of interesting.
yeah, it covers a lot of ground. There's a lot of styles here. Um, you know, the format format stays pretty consistent, which is fun to listen, you know, how they can pull um, all these styles off, you know, pretty much using the same live band um, of, you know, guitars, keyboards, drums, um, without getting, you know, overly in, indulgent with the overdubs and extra strings and all kinds of, you know, things to, um, to make it work. So yeah, the competent musicianship. And I think it has a classic to me, it has a Southern, definitely Southern rock and classic rock feel. Um, not necessarily what I would think of as jam music. Um, I don't, it doesn't feel that indulgent. I think of jam music as being, you know, more long musical passages and meandering. This feels slightly more focused than, than I would expect that. Um, which I enjoyed. What about you, Tim? I, I'm well, I agree with you. I think Jojo Herman, the the keyboard player who pretty much makes a lot of these songs for me, whether it's adding the organ, like you mentioned in You Got Yours, or there's lots of electric piano, and you mentioned the the clavinet. Um, I mean, adding that layer really elevates the songs that he gets to go, you know, be on the forefront um, because he's able to diversify the sound from song to song, you know, listening to a band that's driven by guitar leads and, and solos. I kind of get it after a while. So I'm looking for like, what's, what's he doing on, on different songs. That's making those songs unique. Um, so it doesn't just sound like 10 songs or of just guitar solos and, and sort of a lot of mid tempo riff or uh, tempos, mid tempo tempos. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that to me was like the key to understanding this band. Um, obviously, I mean, I've listened to a lot of Almond brothers and, um, a variety of Southern rock bands. I want to throw Skinner in there with that. I, you know, like you, I didn't mention it earlier, but I had not actually listened to this band. Um, I kind of had stayed away from anything they got remotely compared to the Grateful Dead, whether it was Fish or Mo or uh, any of those bands, just because I just had such a, a negative <laughs> feeling towards the Grateful Dead for so long um, that... Uh, anything that, isn't that any, ironic? <laughs> anything that was associated with it, I I just they're all like, about nope. the happy feeling. Well, and I think it was you know I, we can get into the psychological aspects to it, but like um, you know, growing up in the eighties, there was an uh, such a culture shift that you know there was that the the sort of the the selling out of the hippies to the yuppies type of ideology that was was weirdly like you know i was a pretty perceptive kid when it came to like watching the news every night like i used to watch peter jennings on abc news every night when i was like 12 years old and was a pretty big nerd for that kind of stuff i was a little alex p keaton you know like a little young republican essentially so who didn't like his hippie parents or not didn't like but you know it was like in in constant um friction with his with his hippie parents not that my parents were hippies but like i i just had this very like anything that was that came out of the 60s when i was a kid was like 
I didn't like it. Like I didn't like the Beatles when I was a kid um, or any of that. And they're like the Rolling Stones played when they did their, you're going off on a long weird tangent here, but <laughs> when the Stones played the Steel Wheels tour was like 87 or something like that. Right. Um, they opened in Buffalo and it was a huge deal. You protested the show. I, I didn't protest, <laughs> but I was just like, <laughs> These are lame. This is lame. I was like, these guys are old. And it was a huge deal. They that was when they had that six story stage. I, I went yep. to that show at the municipal stadium in Cleveland. Um, and I wasn't a Rolling Stones fan either at the time. I, I liked Tattoo You because I bought that one with my own money. And I it took me a long time to start liking that record, but eventually I did. Um but yeah, I know what you're saying, kind of. Uh, the Beatles, uh, that Beatles part, I don't get at all. It was just basically, it was just a, it was just a reaction to anything old. Okay. You know, I've I've heard that from actually from people that are older than me. Now, you guys are five to eight years younger than me, I think, something like that, four four to six or something. People that are a few years older than me, kind of had that that sentiment too about the Beatles or, you know, cause the punk, the people that really embraced the punk ethos as it was coming out, you know, and I didn't have that, you know, I, I was kind of like in between all of that for me, heavy metal was the most rebellious thing that could have, have ever happened. And, you know, standing on top of a mountain with a power hammer, you know, like He-Man, but i never got into He-Man, but other people did. Um, <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons, all that stuff was, was, empowering it it felt like that was you know gave me my youth like power or something so i was kind of caught in the middle of all that but for for some reason i love the 60s uh, i think one of my very first collect uh compilation cds had like um white room on it from cream and spirit um and uh eight i'm 18 by alice cooper so that that was like ingrained in me at the age of like 12 or 11 or something like that but as far as let let, let me touch on what what jay said about he didn't wasn't expecting uh what he heard plus he wasn't necessarily calling us jam band music but the 90s jam band is a thing of itself right like if you think of jam music you think of grateful dead and you think of the meandering incredible incredibly long passages that they do um and that is jam band music but in the 90s it was just like everything else in the 90s that was reinvented and widespread panic was one of those bands that reinvented it fish kind of took it into a jazzier direction and goofier um mo followed that lead but with heavy guitars um widespread panic went the kind of the almond brothers route into that realm and the the scene is was huge as we've all known you know oh they yeah broke 60 records like you or they broke records at, at red rocks with 60 sold out shows but it's just like you know for me I, I i went through the 90s with a real open mind i really didn't get into you know really into the jam band music until the 2000s when the rock music that was coming out wasn't as interesting to me anymore, you know? And so I really dove into like 
stuff like widespread panic and um, even fish and the re second reincarnation of fish and that kind of stuff. But as I was in the 90s, I was experiencing it just like I was experiencing the grunge. And I was experiencing when Neo Swing came around and I was experiencing electronica music. So all of these things were like reinventions of the past. I mean, grunge, you guys talked a lot about how some of these albums that, that you've reviewed harken back to the 70s. So it was like grunge was like giving, taking away that that. 80s sheen like taking the drums out of the bathroom and putting them back onto a, a you know a real stage again and i think the jam band movement was also another movement it just was for some reason divisive like the people that didn't want to listen to it were able to not listen to it <laughs> and avoid it all through the whole decade because it just grew and grew and grew and grew because um for let's just take a the widespread panic um, discography. After this, they came out with that live album. Do you have it up, Tim? Uh, oh, I got it right here <laughs> on my desk. Is that um like like the fuse get away? Light fuse get away. Yeah. So this this record came out. Um, I think right after. Now this Bonk looks like a jam band record, like. Seven minutes, 14 minutes, eight and a half minutes, nine minutes, nine so, minutes, seven minutes, seven minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. Yeah. Double live album. Right. It's a double um, live album. That's what I would expect. This, this 149 album was minutes. This album was recorded in the streets of Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. They said they had, I guess there was some, some of the stuff might've been recorded at Red Rocks too, but um, I don't think it was a concert. It's, it's live recordings. But during that tour, I saw them twice. I didn't see that show, <laughs> but there were like a hundred. I think there were one hundred and eighty thousand people in the streets when this re when this record or when when they recorded some of this. Right. And then I saw them in Knoxville, Tennessee, at an outdoor festival of like twenty eight thousand people. And then later in the fall, I saw them in Cleveland or uh, up near Lake Erie in a high school gym that was half full <laughs> yeah so you know clearly they were uh, it's not marketing at that point it's just like what was happening you know and it eventually kind of took over um into the 2000s because now they can play anywhere and just sell out i mean they're the headliners at jazz fest they're the headliners at right Peru, you know let me ask you from from a musical's perspective what works for you about this record well what works for me is everything that I like about music. <laughs> and that is when people, uh, improvisation, improvisational music, um, that's where jam comes into me. It's, it, and, and that's where jam is kind of defined by a lot of the musicians too, right? So the, uh, the live setting, the, they, this jam, the way that they can, manipulate the crowd with their energy and they actually have heavy guitars in concert heavier than the this record even i think if you take like a song like you got yours or um even the the boogie uh, greta at the end of the record if you crank that really loud in your house you kind of get a sense of what you might expect in concert because they they you know they really hit it hard in concert so 
but you know what I like about music is how it connects to the inner soul of, of me. You know, I, I need, it's a, it almost is like blood through my veins. Right. I think a lot of people probably have that kind of, of sentiment, especially in, in our world, but um, the, the, trying to look at this record and critique it, I get a little, you know, a different sense of what's so good about it. I think lyrically, it's really a strong record. There's there's some very thought-provoking lyrics in a lot of these songs. Um, there's some story-ish songs. There's a lot of stuff about being outside, about hiking, about traveling, all these things that are great, you know, um, metaphors for struggles in life or struggles in, you know, anything else that you do and love and, and passionate things that you do in your world. So those kind of things can connect on, on the record a lot more so in, in concert. But when you see everybody singing lyrics, you know, uh, it does kind of have a, that kind of effect as well in live settings. But heck, I love the freaking clavinet. I mean, Stevie Wonder. I mean, he's he gets into he gets into my soul when I hear his clavinet. These guys are pushing it into their danceable tunes, into their uh, funkin' groove. You know, um, that Mellotron in and you got yours. That just brings me back to Led Zeppelin in, in the early seventies and and that spacey feeling. It's like you're somewhere but you're not where you are you know you're out there somewhere and it, and it and it takes you to a place that that feels like there's no gravity or something you know all these things you know the psychedelic experience is there and it's right there on the record so i that's what i like most about the record overall okay i struggle with you mentioned about seeing them live and these songs being played live I have to take this from an album perspective. Like I'm, I've never seen this band live. And to me, whether they're played live heavier doesn't like, I can't consider that. Right. Cause it doesn't matter. No, I mean, no, when I'm you're just, critiquing, if you, if you, th that's what this challenge is all about. I mean, you got a jam band that's putting out a record. So your challenge now is to critique it based on what you hear, but right. also it's difficult to do that. I mean, it's, there's layers upon layers of every album and this one in particular like that Ann Eva song Vic Chestnut singing that right he wrote that song so when you're hearing the words um what's the refrain um how how do how do I continue when I really shouldn't how how to continue when I really shouldn't Vic Chestnut is a victim of I don't know if it was him it was uh, a, he's a quadriplegic he, he was mm -hmm. a he was in a car accident at a young age and Athens, Georgia. I mean, everybody, um, you guys talked about it in the Athens, Georgia episode that he was like an iconic figure in on the scene down there with REM. And, and I, I think REM actually produced his first few albums. Um, John Bell is a, another supportive individual like Michael Stipe and really supported the Athens scene. And the band was from Athens. They signed a Capricorn Records, which was in Macon, so they're also supportive of Macon. But um, so he really supported Vic Chestnut. He brought him, put him on his record. Yeah, I think they actually made two albums before this as a with Vic Chestnut under the band name Brute. Um, I haven't really spent much time with those records, but um, 
Vic Chestnut's up front and center. Well, this song is a perfect example of that. John Bell puts Vic Chestnut in the lead vocal spot and he's singing these songs. So when you hear that, it's like, I mean, you got you kind of have to know that he's a quadriplegic and he's he's wondering, you know, you might want to you might think, well, how do I continue when I really couldn't? Might be the lyric, not really shouldn't. But as a, as he's going through life, he has to rely upon other people so much to just do the smallest things in life that he probably contemplates that all the time. You know, it's like a psychological uh, dilemma for him that that fits those lyrics, but then, you know, you can also find meaning in that in your own self as well. But um, they did that sweet relief. Remember sweet relief for Victoria. Yeah. Um, they did one for him too. It was number two, I think. And live was on there. <laughs> I don't know who else, but there was a bunch of uh, current bands in like 1995 that contributed to that record uh, in support of Vic Chestnut. But John Bell does that with a lot of people. You know, he was born in Cleveland, and he they do um, two Michael Stanley songs live in concert. He does um, "Let Let's Get the Show on the Road." It's a huge song for fans of of Widespread Panic. Um, and Rosewood Bitters, they've done that, you know, which is also done by Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh helped write that song. So he's he's he he went to Athens. To to go to college, started this band, very supportive of the scene. He knows that they're more popular than they probably should be. This movement was happening right around them, and they were just happened to be, you know, the band that everybody nominated as one of the successors to the Grateful Dead. You know, the Grateful Dead were still huge. They were packing, you know, every they were packing, you know, the Jet Stadium, I think, still at that point, all the way up until Jerry's death. And um, but there was a younger generation. It was kind of like put off by the fact that now, you know, it was also so much fun to go to a grateful. It was like Jimmy Buffett concert, you know, for, you know, uh, frat boys too. So I think the scene kind of split a little bit. And then in the new, the newer jam bands started following fish, started following Vites with panic and then picking up on other bands after that leftover salmon and all these uh, string cheese incidents things so i think john bell was like you know we are fortunate to be in the position that we are and we continue and so he just continues to support people that that may not have benefited um when they came to our radio station they did that in uh, i think 98 99 right i guess right after this album maybe um they did a live there. They did three songs live and we wanted to put one of them on our CD so we could offer it to members of the station as a thank you gift. And they donated a song, but he said, you know what, let me do, instead of using one of the songs that we just did, let us record another one and we'll put that on your CD for you. And we said, okay. And it was, it was a cover song they did for a local band called Bloodkin, which was also an, from Athens, Georgia. And he said it right in a song. They started a song. He goes, this song is by Bloodkin. And he played the song. So that's just a, you know, that kind of uh, generosity goes a long way when it comes to, you know, people of that stature, you know? So I think that kind of hits home a little bit too. You know, you want to see that kind of stuff happen. You know? Sure. You want, you know, the, 
underprivileged to, or the underserved to be served a little bit. Okay. Jay. Yes. What are your thoughts about what didn't work for you on the record? It lacks. Well, I, I think the songwriting is is a problem. I think the two best songs from a songwriting standpoint, they didn't write. Um, Which would be a, so. Aunt Avis sounds like Vic Chestnut wrote that. Um, Hope in a Hopeless World was written by Pop Staples. Um, and those feel like immediately like okay, these are these are well written songs like in terms of pop standpoint i think the other stuff sounds like jam songs that are sort of shortened and you know try to be tightened up and be more album friendly um and they lack i guess they lack energy to me they lack like that they feel a little too they don't they don't have enough grit or spontaneity or they feel too clean and like uh they remind me of let me get a good song here. So the song Glory would be a good example. All the stories lead on fortune and fame. Rock them up and shoot. Where it just sounds a little tired, like, and I would uh, maybe uh, the analog would be like a later era Deep Purple song, where it's like still rooted in the same blues, super competent, like really great players, beautifully recorded, but it doesn't have the machine head like energy to it. You know, it's this almost sterile version of all those elements. So I could see like, playing that live. It has probably a totally different energy to it, but on the record, it just sounds like they're a little tired. <laughs> like it doesn't pop and have that, that seven, even like the, some of the things they're referencing here, like say like a song like Greta, like that chorus is total Joe Walsh, which I love. Um, but when you go to back and listen to like, you know, eighties, James gang and Joe Walsh and even the Eagles, there's this like, there's a rawness to it, you know, because of the technology and just how they capture things and probably also the timeline they were on where they record things. You know, a lot of the stuff in the seventies was like not labored over, right? These were just ideas that they had been kicking around. They put them together and put them on tape and boom, that's what you get. And you're capturing these moments that doesn't, that's a spirit they're kind of going for here, you know, in that Southern rock seventies rock kind of vein, it doesn't capture that, same energy. Um, so then when you combine that with some, you know, songs that are performed, you know, competently, but not necessarily like super strong from a hook or, you know, pop standpoint, I think you just end up with a lot of like 
for me, a lot of vanilla material is just a little lackluster um, in the ways delivered on the record. What about you, Tim? I The Almond Brothers got brought up um, both when I was researching the band and then also when we were talking. And I feel like it's not a fair comparison because to me, although the Almond Brothers are kind of the godfathers of Southern rock in some ways, the songwriting to me, their ability to balance, say, a jam versus writing a really tight rock single whether it's Ramblin' Man or Sweet Melissa or or something along those lines is not something that I hear in this band. Like like you said, this these do sound like songs that, you know, played live in front of an audience where you can solo and get the audience involved. I can see how this works, but in some respects, I almost wonder if studio albums are kind of pointless for a band like this. Because when you remove the ability to improvise, I mean, once you lay it down on tape, it's laid down on tape. But a, a live performance, you know, you can hear the same song and it's not going to sound exactly the same because you're going to take that solo in different places and whatnot. And I think that was what was missing is like, yes, these sound all like solid jam band songs a little bit of differentiation from song to song, but there was nothing on here that made me go, Oh, this is a really killer riff or lyric. And actually like, I'm glad you mentioned that hope in a hopeless world was a cover because it, the lyrics are very, um, they sound old. You know what I mean? Like, whatever happened to the golden rule? Yes. Sing that in 19-whatever. But that's actually me, 93. Pop Staples, a later Pop Staples song. But was but it? you're right. It's coming from him. Right. Yeah, I mean, after, it's a guy in his 60s yeah. or 70s, right? It's like, right? It sounds like a 60 or 70-year-old guy. Like, somebody would say, like, common sense ain't common, ain't so common no more. Like, it's yeah. it, it. when I heard that line, I was like, that's the most meaningless, deep lyric I've ever heard. <laughs> You but that's I mean? but that's what you know. You said it was unfair, so I'm going to repeat it. You did say it was unfair to compare them to the Allman Brothers because you did just compared one widespread panic record to the the entire Allman Brothers catalog, right? But, <laughs> but what, uh, and, and, and you I, picked out two great songs, you know. So maybe you could do that with with any band, but uh, but they wrote songs. They, they were mature, and that's that's the difference, like. Almond Brothers wrote songs as mature adults on their very first record, you know, and they were rooted in the blues. I mean, there was, there's almost no variation, deviation from the blues other than a few country songs that they did, you know, but um, lyrically they wrote like old man too. I mean, Greg Almond was 20 years old when he wrote those songs, you know, and they're, you know, the first two albums especially are straight blues rock, you know. Right. But I think, uh, you know. So I, I, I just wanted to equate uh, the lack of energy with more of a mature approach to music. I, I you know, I was, I think I 
tamed myself over the years to be able to listen to to be able to appreciate all you know, and you're you're telling me that you're into other stuff too you know and, and you talk about ambient music you make ambient music you do jazz or you like right. jazz music these are like mature styles of music mm-hmm. when not a, you know i don't even think what widespread panic ever tried to write their you know youthful energetic songs you know for a generation i think people picked up on the fact that they are giving you know helpful life feeling and and you know lyrics to to kind of bond over as you move through life you know that's that you know that, that's just another perspective on what sure I hear you saying but it uh, yeah but again i'm just looking at this from what's on the record and yeah i'm looking but, you know, for I, i'm looking for i think i th- one of the things was i was missing dynamics because it's a lot of i feel the, there's not a lot of dynamic shifts within the songs there, i mean the songs are different slightly from one to the other but like the the differentiation between well there's this blues based or is this jazz based or is this i mean fundamentally like i gotta have a song i can attach my like i need if if it's a quote unquote Southern jam rock band. I need to, I need a reason to listen to this and not listen to the Allman brothers. Like give me something, right. You know what I mean? Like the same thing with days of the new, every time somebody said, Oh, listen to days of the new. I'm like, no, I want to go listen to Alice in Chains. Exactly. Right. (laughs) That's, that's the thing. Um, I was waiting for my midnight rider to, to show up and he didn't show up. Um, (laughs) ah, Sad. There was that instrumental, <laughs> and you it know made what? Made me want though? to go listen to Big Chestnut. It, it well made me want to listen to Jessica, <laughs> but um, uh, which I actually tried to learn, and I learned like the first four notes of that song, and that was about as far as I got listening, <laughs> learning a, a, a Allman Brothers solo. <laughs> I got it. Um, I, I also think from a I don't know that I really like his vocal just from a, a sound. Um, John Bell's fine. He's, he's a very like solid vocalist, but, and I'm sure it works great live, but I, I don't hear the emotion that I would like to. Um, I, I need to hear it like push a little bit more. Um, and so groove based, and I, I'm I'm probably a little more down in this than maybe I really should be because I just watched Summer of Soul, and there's so much amazing soul and blues and funk and R and B that it just like you know it wrecked me for like a half a day because I was like I can't believe I didn't know nobody knew this existed and blah 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 um, that it. I'm coming from such a place of elevated musical listening that like anything that's not up to that par is going to be like annoying me right now. Uh, But you can take the two songs that are covers or the two, the one song where there there's a different singer and you can take the cover and go listen to the original version, just the vocal. I mean, musically it's, it's kind of terrible, but vocally like you can listen to the difference and there is a authenticity to those vocals that I don't hear in his voice. Like he's a f- perfectly fine blues singer, but I don't feel what he's singing. And even though like Vic Chestnut's performance on this is not like 
over the top. It gives me like that Jayhawk sound of lies kind of vibe where there's like a vulnerability and a, you can hear, you know what I mean? In his voice, like he means it and it's real. And then uh, the same with hope and hopeless world, you take those lyrics and you put them in the, you know, coming through the voice of a, you know, a, a guy in his sixties or seventies, you know, and what that voice sounds like and him delivering it with, you know, authenticity it feels completely different than interpreted through this which is like it sounds like um a wedding band playing it baby born in new york city wrapped in a blanket all tattered and warm mama's doing the best that she can like very still and i feel like it live again i'm sure they pull it off like and it's there's there's an emotion to it but like i don't know that this i I just fundamentally don't know if this can work overall as a as an album as like a studio album for me um now if you had said tim we're going down to columbus commons widespread panic is playing a a show i know you don't like jam bands but you got to come check them out Okay, I'll go. I'll go check them out. Assuming everybody's vaccinated, uh, <laughs> and maybe my mind will be completely no. Changed, I, I, I see changed by that because I, I have evolved as a as a listener. I didn't listen to jazz ten years ago, um, and now I've changed dramatically on on listening to jazz music, especially like Afro Cuban jazz and and stuff that's very like groove oriented, uh, Afro-Cuban funk, that kind of stuff. So I, I definitely appreciate, I'm not like someone who's like, I don't want to watch somebody noodle on the guitar for five minutes. Like I can, I can appreciate someone who's, you know, a really solid guitar player, um, who's doing really interesting and inventive things. But I feel like on the record, it's so tamed down that I just feel like I'm listening to a blue scale over and over again, which it doesn't that doesn't like excite me as opposed to if i'm watching it yeah live so that's well, where my I, disconnect I, is i feel exactly what you guys are saying i i think i my taking a look reevaluating my um perspective on it i say i say the words mature and i think and and i know that that is the exact description i think even in concert records and on in concert i think you're you're right about john bell's vocals but those the energy in his vocals aren't what's most important about that band the lyrics are pretty are there and i think it's really about the music and how his vocals are in there rather than 
pushing you into thinking, hey, this would be a good song on on the radio kind of a feeling or get give me give me the energy that I need to have a repeat listen of the CD or something like that. So I know what you, I, I feel what you're what you're saying. I don't I don't completely disagree. I just think it's the other um, important elements of their performance and are it kind of lessen the importance of his dynamics and his vocal. Now he actually, you know, Jojo sings on some of these songs too. Jojo is the guy that has like kind of the more monotone vo voice. Um, you got yours. Um, what else is he singing? I, I just, I didn't realize oh, boy. that um, the current drummer, Dwayne trucks yeah, is the son in... of Derek trucks, not Derek trucks. No, no. Of um of Butch Trucks. Butch Trucks from the Allman Brothers. From now, the Allman he, Brothers. Both the guys that, you know, it's the original band, Widespread Panic is still the original band except for the two people that died. So Michael Hauser left. They replaced him once with a guy that, uh, that played for like two or three years. And then Jimmy Herring came in, who was a jazz guitarist before that. And he's amazing. Like He's married to Jimmy Herring's daughter. Yes, he is. <laughs> So that's some weird stuff right there. You're and married Dwayne, you know, to your guitarist's daughter. Um, oh. But he's well, young. Well, because he's like 30. Yeah. And the guitar young. player is like. 55 or something. Yeah, yeah he's like 60, 55 or 60. Yeah. So, but. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy was in the Allman Brothers gotta be weird. too for a little bit. And Derek Trucks is in the Almond Brothers up until they're, you know, like technically still is. Um, Derek Truck is the nephew of Butch Trucks and the cousin of Dwayne, Dwayne Trucks. So there's family there. Um, also, um, uh, Jimmy Herring. Oh, I wanted to say that to Jay, especially, because Jimmy Herring is so amazing on the guitar that you can, I call him the, the Eddie Van Halen of, the blues jazz world because he could just freaking slay when they when they played when widespread panic and the allman brothers played a double bill down in north carolina we went down to see them maybe 2005 or seven or something like that and uh jimmy herring was on in widespread panic then but during in memory of elizabeth reed they brought jimmy herring up onto the Allman Brothers stage. So they had Warren Haynes, Derek Trucks, and Jimmy Herring doing three leads in <laughs> um, in memory of Elizabeth Reed. And I think Greg, Greg Allman kind of just took like a little short little organ lead instead of the normal long lead that he did in that song. But they just, they basically pushed Jimmy out the front and said, watch what he can do with this. And it was like, he was blistering that song. It was amazing. Um, so that's somebody that I think if in the right setting at the right time, you can really appreciate, um, how good he is. He, yeah. He, there's, there's some really good guitar lines on here. And this is, but this album we're back to, is Michael Hauser. Who's on my t-shirt. Okay. <laughs> and he's the guy uh, that died of cancer. Hey, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you mentioned the lyrics. There's a lyric on this record that I wanted to get your thoughts on. Maybe you have a different interpretation of what it means. Which um, but it kind of stood, it kind of uh, stopped me in my tracks. Uh, in the song Tall Boy, mm -hmm. the lyric is going to summon the Holy Ghost from the battlefield 
reminding this is a southern rock band yeah and in the morning the old world won't be the same nope <laughs> my, my my comment on that was nope <laughs> not gonna do that is that what is your interpretation of that before i well i think in the context of that song and i'm not really good at, at interpreting you know literal lyrics but i think in the context of the song the song is kind of that's another song about either like some sort of tragedy or getting lost in a hike or something like that. And they're traveling and not knowing where they're going to, you know, they're lost traveling or something. I don't know what it is or, or, you know, out it's some outdoorsy camping, hiking, traveling kind of a thing. And they're fearing, you know, it's like that they're fearing what's behind the trees and, you know, summoning the Holy Ghost on the battlefield, maybe there's going to be some sort of obstacle that they're going to have to try. You know, it's going to be a war of some sort to get through to find out where they are. But the the line after that is, in the morning, this old world won't be. Oh, um, later in the song, they say, just trying to find um, a place to shed my skin. So they're trying to find, trying to get out of where they are so they can get to a place, relax you know, like a snake sheds its skin and then turn over a new leaf or, or, you know, begin a new part of their life. You know, I don't know. It's kind of ambiguous, but yeah, that is a haunting kind of imagery that they created with that lyric. I I like your explanation better than what I had in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That one was dicey. I'm like, Oh, this is a bunch of Southern boys uh, romanticizing the, the civil war. Yeah. That's the way I read it. Oh, well, he's from Cleveland, so maybe you and he think alike. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. I'm glad to hear it wasn't what I thought then. Uh, well, we could we could put that up for debate on in any of your forums. <laughs> uh, well, we're going long here, which is not surprising. We're talking about a jam band. It's going to yeah. go a little extra. Yeah, we got to let the, you know, feel out the space, see where it takes us. <laughs> Uh, well, it's going to take me on a plane soon, so I need yep. to uh, I need to uh, get us into the. Um, what, what about the end of the record? Did you listen through the? Do you mean the cicadas the, and the crickets? The cicadas and the crickets. What does he say? <laughs> At the end. Well, that song Greta, which what is it on the track listing? Like eleven minutes or something like that. It's really only a four minutes and twenty five seconds, and then it's nothing but cicadas and crickets. Um, I don't know. Did you listen all the way through? I yeah, did it multiple times because I just let the album play. <laughs> like I'm missing something. Uh, what, what it, no, it's there's nothing. Really, you know, at the beginning, this guy comes on and he's he's kind of giving like a spiel about like a TV guy going, "I got the bug spray. It's gonna basically kills it, every last living thing on the face of the earth." You know, um, and then you know, crickets and bugs and and animals are in the song and then at the end it's just crickets and cicadas but i just hear him say monkey boy monkey boy monkey boy that's what i thought i heard okay i don't know what that means <laughs> i thought you guys i started that. hearing cicadas i was like oh, okay this can be a lot of cicadas and i was like mm. it is at the very end he said i got to the end I was like, it's like 20 seconds to go or something like that but there you go well let's get I'd into like- our we got to get into our ratings here and talk about the poll results. Um, Tim, this is where we nod to you and you bring us home. You bring, you, you start wrapping the song up. 
You're the drummer. Okay. Let's go in for the final. Uh, let's get in the final. Uh, Wait, I got a solo to do. The final, final 16 bars here. Let's bring the melody back. We bring the melody back. We tighten in on it. And uh, drummer will do this. A little bit of this yeah. right here. <laughs> Getting those, those th- what is it, the ride symbols? Yep. Mm-hmm. There you go. I played in a band for 10 years. I know what those are called. The They're clangy called crash, things. Crash the, symbols. The, but the clangies. The clangies. The crashes. The things that made me wear uh, earplugs every week. All right, Jay. Were the album better EP or decent single for Bombs and Butterflies by Widespread Panic? Um. EP for me, uh, I have Radio Child, Aunt Avis, Gradle, You Got Yours, and Greta. Um, yeah, I like, uh, those are the songs that I think from a songwriting standpoint and just an overall, like, they have a little bit of a grittiness to them, a little bit more energy. Um, and those are the ones that, that I think work the best. So where are you at, Tim? I was almost going to go with a single, but I think you have talked me into an EP. I, I agree with those songs. I think those are the songs that sound the most developed. And I wouldn't put them in that order. I don't think Radio Child is the right song to open with. Um, but I do like its vibe. So, yeah. And I would, And it's sentiment, sentimentality. You know, you're indoctrinating your kids every time you sit into a. That's basically what that song's about. The radio is getting into their heads the, the day they're born in that little car seat in the back. <laughs> it's true. My daughter knew. Knew my daughter knew Blondie's uh, "The Tide Is High" long before she knew it's raining tacos. So. <laughs> so there we go. So I'm. A, I would. I'm going to go with an EP as well. Patrick. Um, well, you know, I, I'm not going to say anything other than an album, but the funny thing is, if if you look at all music, this is their worst album they ever released. This got, I think, two stars on all mm. music. Um, they did that one, the first record uh, that they released in the 80s is by far their those songs that they they still play all of those songs in concert, like every single one of them. So that and they've developed over the years. It it somehow got I it has that 80s sound, you know, with the drums and you know and mm. super thin production. So but I thought and maybe it came out in 90, maybe there's maybe it came out in 90, I'm not sure. But maybe that would have been one to to review more so as an album. But for me it's it it I can't separate it from my, you know, experiences. So um, every time I hear it, it's like, yes, this is great. So I give it a whole so, album. So amongst fans, this isn't a super popular. I wouldn't say record. fans. No, I think okay. fans uh, because, li- like I said, I think lyrically, this is one of some of these songs on here are, are some of their um, most poignant songs. They're underrated, like overall. But I think allmusic.com oh, okay. reviewed it as a two star, and um, gotcha. maybe maybe they're right on as far as albums go. Like because you guys are in the middle of the road to you a little bit. Well, I mean, I don't know that we often agree with all music, but <laughs> depends on well, who it is. Uh, Here we I go. I mentioned Love Tractor, which was mentioned in 
the Athens, yeah. Georgia yep. episode. They were an earlier band that came out around the same time as REM rock band. One of the very first songs and one of the biggest songs that Wadsworth Panic plays live is called Love Tractor. And um, so they pay homage to them, um, you know, right off the bat, their first record, but they do it almost every concert. So very cool. But let me give you my uh, pitch to the listeners out there. Give your pitch, quick pitch. These guys do great work. <laughs> I want to praise you. Uh, on behalf of all the listeners, not just the people on Patreon, I want to give you a thank, a heartfelt thank you to you, Tim, and to Jay, because you guys work hard and the dedication is uh, clear. We see it every week. Um, you guys are an anomaly in the world. You stay true to your to your uh your mission statement <laughs> and your goals and i think uh it's very commendable and i think anybody that's listening uh that hasn't been a patreon please consider doing that help these guys uh pay their bills because they put so much you can tell they put so much work into this so i appreciate i appreciate you guys i want um people to hear that um your, your listeners appreciate you uh, almost every single day because there's something new almost every single day. And all the extras that you guys do are great. The box and, you know, the voting for, for shows and, and things like that, all that stuff is, is great. It really um, gives a, you know, community sense to what you guys are doing, which is super um, important to me as anyway. And let me talk about the discord. So if you are a Patreon, Get on Discord because this <laughs> is so much fun out there. They, these, some of the, you know, when I first heard your guys' podcast, I thought that I was the only one to ever listen to some of the records that you guys reviewed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like, holy smokes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's no, 10 literally, other people. Like, I bought this for 10 cents at Singing Dog Records, you know, yeah. in 1894, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so um, it was great. That, that kind of eye opening experience is awesome. But the fact that um, so many people that are that have been on your show that contribute to discord are all stars in <laughs> musical knowledge. They really are. And yeah. so if you get on, if you're a Patreon, get on the discord channel, show yourself because uh, nobody's intimidating out there. Everybody seems to have a good attitude. Yeah. Uh, uh, politics are, are non, non-existent. So if you're sick of TV, go to the discord because all we're doing is talking about music and, and people in the nineties and, and having fun. So awesome. um, become a Patreon, get on discord, <laughs> support DMO, man. It's where you can, uh, it's where you can hear or, or you can read uh, Jay talking about uh, various beers and yeah, uh, there's beers, there's beer talk. <laughs> I drop rap singles occasionally about food. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff happening. I, 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 uh, I'm trying to get a conversation about that new Willow album uh, and the Paul McCartney uh, documentary I just watched. It just blew my mind. Oh, there did you go. watch it? I saw it. Oh, my God. It's so good. I'll be watching Holy it moly. on vacation. Yeah, it'll be uh, some time. Put on some headphones and, and kind of get some space because it's uh, there's so much. It's, it, it is, uh, I think so far I've watched six episodes. I think every one of them was worth watching probably twice. There's so many amazing nuggets in it. So. Cool. But thank you, Patrick. Uh, yeah, I don't thank you, think Patrick. When, Appreciate when, uh, that. 
Tim and I had started doing this, we would have ever in our wildest imagination imagine that there would be a community that would come out of this. So that's probably been, at least for me, the, the most fun part and just seeing everybody's voice and being humbled by realizing like, I don't know shit about any of this. <laughs> like, there are so many people that know way more. So it's just fun to kind of take a sort of a, a little bit of a backseat on, on a lot of this and just take it in and yeah, yeah. have fun talking about a bunch of different things that um, are a nice distraction from the yeah, and that the and in the world. get to talk to people from all corners of the world, Australia and England and Canada, yeah. and we don't have anybody from China yet. Not yet. <laughs> Never know. Um, I do. Uh, I do need to um, wrap us up here because uh, my clock is ticking. Because as soon as we're done, I'm I'm going on vacation, guys. Sorry, go baby. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to uh, remind folks that you can suggest an album by joining us at Patreon, just as Patrick mentioned. You also get to vote in polls for each month's uh, picks from the Dig Me Out podcast album depository, which you can go to at digmeoutpodcast.com. You just go to the suggest an album uh, link and you can suggest a record and it'll be show up in a poll once a month. It's also where we have... um, the signups for the box newsletter, which is delivered every week to your email inbox. Two new reviews every week of books, music, or movies relevant to the podcast 80s and 90s music. Um, also, want to remind folks if you like what you heard, consider leaving us some positive feedback at Apple Podcasts. Patrick, thanks you. Thank you for joining us on your Saturday afternoon. Thank you. And uh, for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. She wakes every morning seeing all the young-